Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, so here's a joke I wrote for my son Solomon, who is 12 years old at the time. What do you get when you cross a porcupine and a chainsaw? I don't know, but I sure don't want it in my underpants. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a sophisticated joke from Stephen yeah. Dubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. That'll help break the ice. Especially at a 12-year-old's birthday party. In case you're attending a ton of those. Yep. Later in the show, Stephen offers etiquette advice, and we'll talk to musician Connor Oberst about his new album, Upside Down Mountain. Plus, actor Griffin Dunn discovers his is Mojo and author Colson Whitehead deals. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A formal dedication today in Lower Manhattan for the new National September 11th Memorial Museum. Massive flames across San Diego County. Donald Sterling told CNN's Anderson Cooper he's sorry and wants forgiveness. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is the executive editor of Modern Farmer, the food and culture magazine. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about why swearing is good for you. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Sounds better than exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there um, there was a recent presentation at a British Psychological Society convention um, that went into the various ways that swearing is it's healthy. It's a great emotional release. This is proven now. There, there are some studies that indicate that. All right. So what did the studies consist of? If it was me, I would put people in heavy traffic and monitor the obscenities. I think the most interesting <laughs> study was when they took a group of people, divided them into two camps, and had them hold a glass filled with ice cubes. And they told one group that they were allowed to swear and one group that they couldn't. And the people that could swear held the ice longer. Wow. So, like, it it sort of protected them from pain? Indeed. So, basically, we should be playing Richard Pryor at pain clinics, is what, <laughs> <laughs> is what we found yeah. out. Well, one of the lead researchers, um, Dr. Richard Stevens of Keele University, he was inspired by watching his wife go through labor with a string of profanities. <laughs> or listening to his wife go through labor. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And and there, were, there was also, um, they did some studies about how the most taboo swear words provided the most relief. So there's one caveat. The more you swear, the less powerful it is each time you swear as an emotional release. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Rayhan, I want to swear all I want. (laughs) You guys are bad at swearing. Uh, Rayhan Harmadzi, thanks for the small talk. Yeah. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender represent it in the form of a cocktail. It's like history is old faithful, erupting booze. What a popular attraction that would be. Mm. First, the history part. This past week, back in 1958, a patent was filed for an invention that changed clothes forever. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Great ideas don't grow on trees, but sometimes they do grow on plants. <laughs> Take, for example, the case of Mr. George de Mistral. He was a Swiss engineer, and one day in 1941, he went on a hunting trip through the Alps. When he got home, he noticed little burrs from a burdock plant stuck all over his clothes. Mistral looked at the burrs under a microscope and learned their secret. They were bristling with tiny hooks, perfect for latching onto anything that bristled with little tiny loops. 
like fabric or his dog's fur. Instantly, Mistral envisioned a product that mimicked this natural miracle, a two-piece fastener, one piece with hooks, one with loops, that'd stick together with just a little firm pressure. 10 years later, he'd invented this, quote, zipless zipper. He called it Velcro, a conflation of the words velvet and crochet. It was not an instant hit. Fashion designers thought Velcro looked, well, kind of janky. But when NASA started using it to help astronauts get into and out of bulky spacesuits, Velcro caught on. Soon it was on everything from ski wear to kids' shoes. And eventually Mistral was inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame. Velcro's the most famous, but hardly the only, example of inventions inspired by nature. After watching kingfisher birds speed through water, designer Aiji Nakatsu shaped Japanese bullet trains like the bird's beak. And a new super adhesive tape mimics the sticky hairs on the feet of geckos. So that was the history, and now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Edward Alois. He is co-owner and chef of Republic Cafe and Bistro in the city of Manchester, New Hampshire, which is where Velcro USA is headquartered. Edward, what drink did that inspire you to make? Well, it took a collaborative effort between uh, myself and our bar chef, Jack, uh, to come up with it. I think one of the advantages of Jack and I is that uh, we predate Velcro, so I guess we had... (laughs) Uh, we kind of had a, a different historical perspective on this, you know. You um, both remember a time when things just fell apart. We actually tied our shoelaces, yeah. Oh, my God. Could you imagine that? Was that before the Internet? I think it probably was. <laughs> I think that was before Coca-Cola. I'm not really sure. <laughs> oh, my God. But, uh, anyway, so what do you call this drink? It's called Astro Grass, A-S-T-R-O Grass. Why? Well, we're thinking about what Velcro is, the texture of it, kind of like AstroTurf. Oh, yeah. And it starts out with uh, one ounce of Captain Morgan's rum. Okay. uh, Three ounces of freshly squeezed orange juice, a quarter ounce of green chartreuse, and a quarter ounce of Aperol. And I guess the green chartreuse is to evoke grass or something? Well, no, and the the key is that once you add the green chartreuse and the Aperol, you're looking at a layered drink that immediately disappears, almost like when you connect your Velcro strap. Oh, so so it starts off, it looks like layers, but then they start blending together. Then they start blending in. It's kind of like the two pieces of Velcro. And then you garnish with a sprig of frise. You can dip that in the in the cocktail, and you take a sip, and you take a little bite of the bitter green. That's kind of cool. Also, the, the frise has, like, little hook ends on yes, it. Yes, it does. That's exactly right. By the way, so is Manchester kind of a Velcro town? Is Velcro Industries a big part of the community there? Uh, you know, it's a part of it. Uh, Velcro is just one of the many things that's going on down here. It's a big high-tech center. It's a health center. It's a banking center, finance. I was just imagining, like, a, a town where everything was just really firmly held in place. No, everything is not Velcro together, you know, but... Uh, It'd be a great town to be in an earthquake in, I was hoping. <laughs> well, we're grounded in granite, so I guess we're okay. <laughs> and so, Brendan, as a part Jew, I especially love the idea of dipping the bitter frisé in the cocktail because it's like Passover. <laughs> dipping parsley in salt water. If you substituted the rum with, like, Manischewitz, you have a whole <laughs> Seder in a cup. That's It could be. Let's market that. <laughs> All right. Well, in the meantime, our drink recipes are 100% non-denominational, nice. and folks can find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is writer Colson Whitehead. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant, and his books have touched on everything from American mythmaking to zombie apocalypses. His new project is about a different sort of zombie, the poker obsessive. <laughs> Here he is to tell us about it and his list. Howdy, I'm Colson Whitehead, and my new book is called The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef, Jerky, and Death. It's kind of a eat-pray-love for depressed shut-ins. A couple years ago, I was hired by the magazine Grantland to write about sports, but I hate sports. Um, they heard I like poker, and then they offered to pay my $10,000 buy-in and have me play in the World Series. And of course, I couldn't say no. So here's a list of some of my favorite poker and poker-related artifacts. One of the first books about the World Series of Poker was A. Alvarez's The Biggest Game in Town. The New Yorker sent him to cover the 1981 World Series of Poker. It's a very colorful account of early 80s Vegas before it became very family-friendly and corporate, still very grungy. One of the things that I related to is, you know, he's an Englishman, he's also a poet. I've never actually read his poetry and very much an outsider in gaudy Vegas culture. So his descriptions of his interactions with these crusty old legendary cowboys of poker, you know, I, I can't help but chuckle at his outsider status among these very American types. He brings a great welcoming voice and elegant eye to the proceedings before the TV cameras, before the shots which allow you to see poker players down cards. Uh, it's people like Alvarez who bring the Vegas experience to the home player. There are a lot of great poker movies and gambling movies. The Hustler with Paul Newman. Rounders in 1998 uh, was the first big movie about Hold'em and introduced it to a lot of teenagers who later came to dominate the game. But I keep thinking about Casino Royale, the reboot of the James Bond movies. Instead of Baccarat in the classic James Bond style, there's a big Hold'em tournament. I'm on it. And there's one scene where he's been poisoned by a international supervillain, uh, has to run out because he's having a heart attack, and brings himself back to life by jump-starting his heart with a defibrillator. Most cars one day will hopefully be equipped with defibrillators in case this happens to you. <laughs> he comes back from the brink, sweaty, disheveled, returns back to the game. And in between hands at the World Series of Poker, uh, when I was freaking out, trying not to have my hand shake, and trying to keep track of all the poker lore I had crammed in six weeks, it wasn't quite as dramatic as having a heart attack, but I certainly was sweating a lot. Having James Bond, this very cool customer, also have a breakdown during very key poker hands, gave me inspiration. Yeah, we're talking about poker here, so I'm going to bluff a little and use Dealer's Choice to put in one of my inspirations, Zona by Jeff Dyer. It's not about poker. It's about a movie that a person loves. Jeff Dyer, he writes novels, books of essays. In this book, he's writing about the film Stalker by Tarkovsky, a very slow science fiction movie about a forbidden zone where strange things happen, and people are always organizing expeditions into this wasteland. 
he's very funny. And so humor becomes a way of translating this very sort of lugubrious is perhaps one word. Uh, meditative is another film for folks who haven't seen it and perhaps aren't acquainted with late 1970s Russian science fiction cinema. In trying to figure out why I love poker, I was engaged in the same sort of dilemma. Poker is, from the outside, and actually sometimes from the inside, quite boring. Even the most aggressive players are only playing four out of every ten hands. You're constantly biding your time, waiting for a chance to strike. So, Jeff Dyer's book captures the high-wire act that any writer's engaged in when they're taking a subculture and trying to bring it to an audience that's not familiar with it. It's a risk and a gamble. The guest list from Colson Whitehead. His new book is called The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef Jerky, and Death. Almost a great packing list for a campout. All yeah. right, people, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, musician Connor Oberst takes us to places high and low. First, take a guess at the flattest state. Hint, it's not Kansas. Hmm. The answer when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, author and freakonomist Stephen Dubner answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, writer and actress Annabelle Gerwich reads from her best-selling book. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's singer-songwriter Connor Oberst. He's the central figure in several music projects, including Monsters of Folk, Desperacitos, and the hugely popular indie rock band Bright Eyes, which he started when he was a 15-year-old kid in Omaha, Nebraska. Wow. Yeah. Connor sings about life, love, and politics, and is known for his thoughtful lyrics and passionate vocal delivery. This week, he's releasing his fifth album under his own name. It's called Upside Down Mountain. And when we met, I started by asking, what is an upside down mountain? I guess just the idea of the human condition and how we're all maybe on our own little mountaintops. You know, the old saying of born alone and you die alone. Yeah. And uh might sound a bit morbid, but I think it's a good thing to come to terms with. And then there's also like this place in France. It's like a mountain, but the oldest rocks are on the top huh. and the youngest rocks are on the bottom, which I, I like that. You said in an interview once that writing songs helped you clarify your thoughts. What did working on this album reveal to you? What did you learn? <laughs> well, I don't know what I, I don't know if I learned much, but yeah, I think writing for me is that, you know, I oftentimes I feel like I'm walking around with my head in the clouds a little bit or just have a somewhat scattered brain. So if I can write something down that can feel like truth and more importantly like something I can like stand apart from and like look at it and be like, yeah, that to me that is truth. Those are my favorite moments in when I'm working on words and, and lyrics and that's the kind of feeling I'm always striving for yeah don't always get there obviously let's play radio producer if I was going to put, bring some music up when you're talking about one of these truths that you stumbled upon okay. is there any any of the song in particular any turn of phrase or any moment that well the song that is released now you know it's called hundreds of ways and you know that's basically that idea of no matter what is happening no matter the chaos and everything and all the sort of negativity in the universe you know it's up to the individual to find coping mechanisms and to find ways to, because I mean, you're you, there's not too many choices. You uh, you can uh, curl up into a ball, or you can <laughs> yeah. exit the stage, or you can find your way through to tomorrow. It took centuries to build these twisted cities. 
took seconds to reduce them down to dust And all the tour guide could say was take your pictures, folks, it's late And try your best, please, to remember what was done Don't look so forlorn, don't you look so scared Don't get so upset, this world was never So that song has an almost optimistic chorus, although there are some cynical lines in it. <laughs> but other parts of the record are, are much more somber. You know, there's a song called Lonely at the Top. Uh, at one point you sing, I hope I'm forgotten when I die. There's a lot of melancholy on this album. Sure, I think there's absolutely a little bit of melancholy. I mean, I hope there's also some hopeful messages or moments. Life, you know, life is suffering in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of horrible things in the world, but it's also kind of what you make of it. There is a lyric, something about, I no longer am worried about if I'm going to be bored. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that an overriding feeling you have now? Do you feel like the sound and fury of, of youth, you've had enough of that? Yeah, and I just think, you know, the times we live in, you know, obviously it's just a never-ending distraction and to get yeah. constantly try to get away from yourself and this false connectiveness that is so much the ways of the world these days. And, I hate uh, Twitter too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have two standard questions we ask each of our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, I would say one that comes up in some form or another is like essentially like, you've been making records, you know, since you were 13 and you've kind of collected this loyal fan base that is often fanatical towards your work. Can you explain, you know, what resonates with them about your your work? Yeah. I mean, think about that for a second. It's like, what are your choices? Your choices are say a bunch of like flattering stuff about your, like wax yeah. poetic Come about how, how yeah. dope you are, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or like throw your, your fans, fans under, under the, the bus. bus and be yeah. like, they're gullible. I've been taking their money for years, <laughs> laughing all the way to the bank, you know? Or give the probably the truthful answer, which is I have no idea. Yeah. And, and then an unsatisfied I, journalist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, I... I feel grateful for it, but I yeah. certainly can't explain it. I think, you know, I think longevity in the music business is comes down mostly to luck. All right. Well, our other question is: tell us something we don't know, and this can be something personal you haven't shared in, in an interview, or it could just be kind of an interesting fact. This this is an interesting fact that I learned recently. I'm from Nebraska. I'm from mm-hmm. Omaha. Mm-hmm. And my whole life, I've thought or been told that we're either the flattest state, or if not, we're not the flattest state. We're like mm. one of the flattest like states. Topographically, yes, topographically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're not. We're not, not the, the flattest. Fla- you're state. not the flat No, there's state. like a new study that they did at like uh, University of Kansas, <sighs> mm-hmm. who's also extremely flat state. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. they were trying to claim they were the flattest. Um, wow, race to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so take a guess. Well, first take a guess at the flattest state. I'm gonna just take a guess. Oklahoma. Incorrect. Okay. But good guess. Okay. Um, do you want to know? Yeah, I would, please. Florida. Florida? Yes. Wow. Strange, right? Well, I guess Se- there's a lot of swamps. Yeah, and that is low. I mean, it's on low sea level a lot yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the second's like Illinois. The whole top five was confusing to me. Minnesota, which, you know, I think of as kind of yeah. having a lot of things going on. Yeah. North Dakota, which I would the have ge- I would have guessed North Dakota, actually. That's one. Yeah, yeah. And then I, th- I think the other one was like in the top five was like Louisiana or something like that. Wow. But a lot of swamps uh, there. So I'm seeing water. Yeah. Right? A lot of lakes, land of great. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And then Nebraska is 19th. 
Now is that so, a, so do, is that does it make you proud? Or I get. Just I mean, confused? it's like a it's like a relief, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that's part of the reason you call you made an album about a mountain because as a Nebraskan you feel a little insecure about your state's Maybe so. Right? I want to redefine the, the I want to redefine our idea of mountains, you know, to, right. to make us all in the Midwest feel a little better. True love it hides like city stars. Nothing to gaze upon. Or contemplate how near or far If it comes, it comes quite unannounced A momentary glance Lit up by sun or moon By bonfire or ambulance Then how the circumstances change Zigzagging Towards the Light A song from Connor Oberst's new album Upside Down Mountain and Rico, I checked, and it's true. Florida is the lowest state. All right. I also found out the most mountainous state. Do you want to take a guess? Oh. Uh, I will say Colorado or West Virginia. It is West Virginia. Nice. All right. Wow. <laughs> I'm a uh, genius. I, I guess Colorado. Uh, I don't think a lot of people would have said West Virginia, but well, well I do. I have to admit that I lived there for a few years. Oh, I see. Which is why I knew. This could explain your low boiling point. <laughs> <laughs> to eavesdrop. Comic actress and sometimes guest on this show, Annabelle Gerwich, recently published I See You Made an Effort, her comic memoir about turning 50. It hit the New York Times bestseller list this week. Today we overhear an excerpt about a torrid trip to the Apple Store. My computer was moving sluggishly. Then the software failed to load altogether. It was going to take a stroke of genius to get it working again. My genius was wearing a name tag that read A-U-D-U-M. I asked him how he pronounced it. Is it a creative spelling of the first man, Adam? Is it a Sanskrit chant, Adam? No, it's pronounced autumn, like the season. Are you in a band, I asked. No, my mother gave me that name. Oh, Autumn begins talking about his mother. She's a speech pathologist who lives in Albuquerque, and he admires her work. I am charmed by his obvious affection for his mother. He has been well cared for, I think, as I notice he has good teeth. As he examines my computer, he tells me that my hard drive is dying. But it's so young, it's only a few years old. He explains that computer years are like dog years times three, making my computer only slightly younger than me. Autumn, how old are you? 26. That's when he suggests a radical move. He wants to strip my computer down completely, and then he will reload my hard drive. In order to make this work, I will have to agree to do everything he says, even if it sounds a bit unusual. To give something, we have to take something away, he tells me. Is he quoting the Bible or a sacred Steve Jobsian aphorism? I have no idea. But he had me at reload. I have fallen in love with Autumn Genius. His affection for his mother, coupled with my being totally dependent on whomever can repair what has become my most essential appendage, has endeared him to me. His hair might be a little greasy, but the teeth are good. The teeth are good, I assure myself. Dear 
God. I just want one night of genius sex before I hit the half-century mark. But where would we do it? My house? No. We have kid artwork hanging everywhere, and it just seems wrong that we would sneak by the watercolor rendering of a dinosaur pooping as we head into the bedroom. Cannot go to a cheap motel. A cheap motel does not figure into this or any other fantasy I have at this age. No, I will have to dip into our savings for a swanky hotel. Hopefully, I can write it off as a business expense. Yes! You're good to go. Yes, I whisper. I mean, yes? My shift is over, he says. Your laptop's ready and rotating my computer. I can see that the folder he's created for my retrieved documents is named Old Annabelle. (sighs) I catch sight of Autumn heading towards the exit. Out of his uniform, he looks different. He gives me a little wave and I can tell by the tentative and reluctant quality of that wave and his red high-top keds that we will not be hooking up. Autumn leaves. I feel a bit sad, but also extremely relieved. Annabelle Gerwich reading from her new collection, I See You Made an Effort, Compliments, Indignities, and Survival Stories from the Edge of 50. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Brendan, there's been huge interest lately in what are called ancient grains. I'm All sure right. you've been reading All right. about And we're this. not talking about the wheat thin crumbs in, in the creases of my couch, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank God. They are pretty ancient. I'm talking about alternatives to standard corn, wheat, etc. Okay. Often they are higher in fiber. Many are gluten-free. Quinoa is a popular example. Oh, I've heard of that. Maybe too much. But an up-and-comer is called Teff. And there's a new company called Love Grain that is selling a Teff-based pancake mix. It actually just won them an Agricultural Innovation Prize, in fact. So this week I asked co-founders Alim Ahmed and Caroline Malden to tell me about Teff. So teff is an ancient grain from Ethiopia that's been grown there for over 5,000 years. It's the tiniest grain in the world. It has a subtle, nutty flavor. It's grown by over 6 million farming households in Ethiopia. I wanted to ask you about the tiniest grain thing. First of all, who is going around measuring all grains? That sounds like a really bad part-time job. (laughs) You know, I think it's um, seed scientists. Okay, I would hope so. (laughs) Whose job is to do that. Uh, By tiny, how tiny are we talking? I mean, lesser than even, say... uh, couscous or something? So tiny that it would would actually fall through um, a sifter. So really, really fine. Um, Does its size give it any special properties? Yes, it does. You'll notice that it's high in fiber, and and that's because it's the tiniest grain in the world. The ratio of the outside of the grain to the inside is the highest ratio. Okay, and on the outside is kind of where the fiber lives on a grain. Yeah. And there's a lot of outside to this grain, so it has a lot of fiber. Exactly, right? right. Teff actually, uh, it's actually got 50% more protein, five times the fiber, and 25 times more calcium than brown rice. Well, why are we only now starting to talk about that in this country then? It's really because folks haven't connected the dots. You know, so Ethiopia has sort of been off the international food scene for a while, and 
Cool. You know, it, it was it was a country that that used to be closed off to the world, but um, is now growing and is vibrant. And is, sure, Ethiopian coffee, of course, very popular, right, delicious, absolutely. and actually, most Americans who have eaten Ethiopian food will know teff as the basis for injera, right. which is sort of the spongy flatbread that Ethiopian food is served on. Sure, and it's so, also used often to scoop up the the kind of pasty food. Indeed, eating with your hands, my favorite way. Now that's interesting that you bring that up because that flatbread, when I've eaten at Ethiopian restaurants, is kind of sour. It has a tang to it. Is that typical of anything made with teff? It's not, actually. The The sourness is coming from the fermentation that, you know, a typical sour sourdough bread would also go through. Um, um, the teff itself has kind of, as Aline mentioned, a sort of subtle, nutty flavor and really can lend itself to savory goods or to sweet goods. So part of the goal of your company is to import teff from Ethiopia to sort of help the Ethiopian farmers. But how much teff is grown in the United States right now? There are a couple of folks growing it in the U.S. When it was grown first, it was primarily grown for the straw and for the grass as cattle feed and not really oh. for the grain. I would say the primary teff that's used for food products is coming from Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit is being imported right now. But that would be mostly just for the Ethiopian diaspora. Most of the imports that we have today are going to places like D.C. where there's a large amount of Ethiopians. I see. They want the real stuff from back home. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Here's the thing, though. If it becomes very popular... Is there a risk that maybe by popularizing this, we're actually going to make it more expensive or cut down on supply? Well, so that's a, you know, it's a great question, but we're, we're actually getting out ahead of a projected surplus in Ethiopia of TEF. Um, when I used to work on agriculture projects in Ethiopia, we um, had found new ways of planting the grain that we were projecting TEF surpluses down the line. So from the same plot of land, we were expecting you know, twice as much TEF. And if there was excess TEF in the country, the prices would begin to start dropping, which could actually end up hurting the farmers at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so by finding export markets for this TEF, um, we're actually going to create a floor so that the price can't drop below a certain level for the farmers. Okay. I am going to try some of this stuff. Our intrepid associate producer, Jackson Musker, along with our digital assistant, uh, Brittany Martin, cooked up a batch of pancakes with this mix that you have made of TEF. They look like any other pancakes, maybe more like buckwheat pancakes. They have a darker... Sure sheen to them, I guess. Um, I'm going to try some plain. Jackson also provided some uh, maple syrup. I should know that go. it's not real maple syrup. I feel like we haven't trained uh, you well, Jackson. Oh my gosh, sacrilegious. This is the corn syrup-based stuff. Uh, so I'm going to try some of this. Here we go. Exciting. Oh, it's really good. Oh, wonderful. It's really good. <laughs> is there sugar in this uh, recipe? There's coconut sugar in our dry mix. So it is it is actually sweeter than the typical pancake that I get, which actually needs a lot of syrup to give yeah, it some punch. Exactly. Can you use this for basically anything that requires some sort of flour, you know, corn flour, wheat flour, whatever? Could you make tortillas out of this? So muffins, scones, banana bread, the, the mix as it exists today can actually be used for any of those things. We are now in the process of developing a more general baking mix that, as you say, can be made into sort of tortillas, crackers, um, et cetera. All right. Fiber-rich tacos. <laughs> but it's... it'll also keep you full longer, too. That's one of the <laughs> right. benefits of fiber. <laughs> are you telling me that these pan cakes could be diet food. You got it. Could you make donuts out of this stuff? I mean, why not? (laughs) Holy God. Everything's different now. (laughs) 
Sir Brendan Tasty stuff, but uh, I do want to say thank you to Jackson and Brittany for making the pancakes. Mm-hmm. Neither cooking them nor guessing my preferred form of syrup is in your job description, and they were delicious. So, you are forgiven. Thank you. That's really big of you, Jackson. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, Freakonomist Stephen Dubner and actor Griffin Dunn when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we chat with actor Griffin Dunn about his new movie, The Discoverers, and about his beloved aunt. But first, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Stephen Dubner. He is best known as co-author, along with Stephen Levitt, of the monster bestseller Freakonomics, A Rogue Economist Considers the Hidden Side of Everything, In it, they applied economic theory to subjects not usually covered by economists and came up with often counterintuitive insights about how people and society function. The book spawned a sequel, Super Freakonomics, also a documentary, a great podcast. I know. And now a new book. It's called Think Like a Freak. The authors of Freakonomics offer to retrain your brain. And Stephen, welcome. Hey, thank you. That is When I hear you say that, it sounds so scary. We offer to retrain your brain. That doesn't sound voluntary at <laughs> you all. You came up it? with the idea, man. <laughs> it's your title. I'm not sure if I came up with that part. I, all right. I certainly agreed to it at some point, but it, doesn't it sound somewhere between Frankenstein and Dr. Strangelove, though? It's provocative. Yeah, it could be considered a little fascist. <laughs> but we know that that wasn't why you wrote this book. Apparently, you know, you wrote the book to help people live better lives, right? Ostensibly, yeah. We thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could, like, help people solve problems? What if we could deputize the whole world or whoever wants to, to think like we do, if they want to, to kind of have this set of rules for thinking a little bit more productively or rationally or creatively or whatever. And so that's that's the idea of this book. Yeah. And for you, a big part of problem solving is a concept called incentivizing. Can you first, like, quickly lay out for folks who haven't read any of these books how that works? Yeah, so basically we do argue in every book, really, because this is the really the foundation of what we do is that people respond to incentives. So there's some set of incentives around a certain issue that's going to change their behavior. And when you say incentives, a lot of people think money, financial mm-hmm. incentives. But there are other incentives that really, really, really change behavior for good or bad. Dessert. Dessert is a big one. <laughs> you know, the amuse-bouche has made men do things they never thought they would do. Um, <laughs> and so we have some examples in the new book how, you know, there will be a, a topic like how do you get people to consume less electricity? And when, yeah. if you ask them how, what will change your behavior, they'll tell you that, you know, a certain moral incentive, I want to protect the planet, or a social incentive, you know, uh, I want to leave it in, in better condition for my grandkids. That's what we say. But this experiment showed that the only incentive that really worked was what we call the herd mentality incentive. In other words, if you tell people that everybody else is, let's say, using fans instead of air conditioning that's going to get them to do it, as opposed to say, did you know how many fewer tons of carbon dioxide you can put into the atmosphere and so on? And that feels true, but it's also, in a way, it's kind of an unromantic view of humanity that you necessarily have to believe in there, you know? Yeah, so I think the natural response is to say, oh, man, that stinks. The human animal is so flawed, and why can't we all do things that are good because they're good? My good behavior helps everybody. But my view is not to judge that and to condemn it, my view is that's useful information. And so if I really want to help the world, 
I should put away my moral compass, at least temporarily. When you're trying to really figure out a problem, I should find a solution that is not one that everybody should do because it's the right thing. I should find a solution that everybody will do because they want to do it. All right. All right well, we're going to ask you to take your moral compass out right now, though, <laughs> if, if you can still find it. Yeah. You mean actually use it. Utilize that thing. Dust it off. <laughs> That's right. right. Or order one on Amazon and have it delivered by drone to you. <laughs> by drone. Uh, because we have a group of questions our listeners uh, sent in, and you can use your moral compass or you can use incentives, whatever. We won't judge you. There you go. So okay. are you ready for this? Never been more ready for anything in my life. <laughs> wow, that's All right. a little frightening. This first question comes from Lauren in Oakland, California. And Lauren writes, My husband and I have a couple local restaurants that we frequent, like frequent enough that all the regular staff recognize us. The other day I saw an online deal, something like a Groupon, for one of our regular restaurants. Is it bad form to buy and use an online deal at a restaurant you frequent? Oh, that's a great question. I love that. So... Yeah. Um, here's what I would do, and, and I'm not saying this is based on either a good moral compass or a good reckoning of incentives. <laughs> I would bring my coupon in there. I would let them bring me the bill with the discount, with it's 50%, and then you know what I would do? I would just tip yeah. the tip double hard. or triple like or whatever, this. tip super hard so that sure. they yeah. actually get more of it because then this is what you're, you're solving what's called the principal agent problem. So the people who are bummed, meaning the waiters, you're making a point to them, I'm going to pay more to you and this is a one-time thing and I don't want it to hurt yeah. you. That's a great answer. Absolutely. And that's right. kind of what you do if you get comped anything, you know, for exactly. free at a, at a restaurant. You're kind of supposed to tip as though you paid for it. In other words, that was an incredibly unoriginal answer. And you're right. <laughs> now that in retrospect, I realize. Yeah, but it. you use that whole principal agent thing <laughs> yeah. and that was really impressed. That was dazzling. So. I dressed it up. Yeah. Now we know why we do that thing. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. Here's something from Johan in Norway. Oh, I'm going to Norway soon for the first time. I'm so excited. Uh, we'll hook you up with Johan. Dude's cool. I appreciate that. He says, when commuting using public transportation, I think we all look forward to spending 20 minutes with a book, a podcast, newspaper, or whatnot. So when you run into a neighbor or an acquaintance on a train and they make extended small talk, I feel like they're breaching this unspoken contract. But sometimes it seems like they feel forced into starting a conversation and we both actually feel awkward. How do I navigate this? Do they not have headphones in Norway? Because that is what <laughs> headphones are. That's so a good headphones point. are the universal symbol of yep. leave me alone. I, eh, I I may love you, but I am in my world right now. And yeah. you know, look, here, I'll tell you something. I think that nonverbal facial communication is really underused. Like I really like communicating with people without saying anything, like an eye, you know, a brow raise, a smile. Like, mm -hmm. I love to smile at people. I hate having to make the small <laughs> talk. You know, it's like you run into the same people over and over and over again. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Lie, lie, lie. It's a series of <laughs> lies, right? Instead, uh -huh. you know, you can throw me a raised brow, like, how's it going? And I can give you a uh, wah, wah, you know, like, okay. Or if I'm Shrug going well, I can give you, like, the big smile, and then you might yeah. give me the big smile back. So I think that you can do a lot more with your face than people think. But once the headphone barrier is breached, then, yeah, Johan is right. It can be hard to put him back on. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the know? question. Sure. It's kind of like, how do you keep your headphones on well, if somebody's think, like, hey? I think you do the headphone hover. You just pull it out of your ear an inch, and you look at them with raised eyes. You're like, oh. uh-huh, uh-huh. But look as if you got to put it right back in there. Yeah, that's nice. you got to be, uh, you know, I'm an over-the-ear headphone person, which is, they're ridiculous. Oh. They look like earmuffs. They're like, get the heck away from me. It's a big stop sign. Exactly. They do really <laughs> indicate, like, I am the equivalent of your kryptonite, whatever, and you should not uh, get in my zone. Yeah. All right. So. I didn't realize Norwegians had small talk problems. I was um, going to say it's possible that <laughs> Johan has a lower threshold for idle yeah. chit chat. <laughs> so maybe his small talk is just like, is this seat taken? He's like, why are you talking so long? <laughs> oh my God. This conversation <laughs> is endless. I know. Thanks, I, Johan. I think you just lost your Norway listenership. I had, hate to tell you. I know. You, yeah. I think we just turned into, we picked up the Don Rickles audience, <laughs> though. So that's good. <laughs> that's good. But, Stephen, uh, alas, we are out of time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. That was fun. Thank you so much, Stephen. That was really fun. That was way more fun than the average thing. Stephen Dubner, his new book is called Think Like a Freak. The authors of Freakonomics offer to retrain your brain. It is in stores now. Perfect to bury your face in so no one harasses you on the bus. Yes, (laughs) ideal, in fact. And folks, if you want to retrain the brains of your friends and family regarding matters of etiquette, we are here to help. Yeah. Send your query via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Or you can call our etiquette hotline. The number is 213-621-3470. It's a real phone number. You probably know who Griffin Dunn is, even if his name doesn't ring a bell. He was the leading man in some beloved 80s films, including American Werewolf in London, Who's That Girl, the one with Madonna, and Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And since then, he's acted in dozens of movies and TV shows while also directing and producing feature films. But it's been a little while since he's carried a movie. In the new indie comedy, The Discoverers, he gets to do just that. He plays Lewis Birch, a beset-upon history professor who takes his teenage children on a cross-country road trip to save his career, but it's derailed by his father, a new widow who can't be left alone and yet insists on participating in a yearly reenactment of the Lewis and Clark expedition. It's an odd little comedy about family dysfunction. Griffin, what did you think when you first met your character, Lewis Birch, on the page? I was struck by how sort of prescient it felt to my life. You know, the guy I play is an academic who's had his ups and downs in both his career and his personal life and was kind of entering a new stage in his life. He wasn't sure where it could where it was going to go. It was sort of filled with hope and then disappointment in a blink of an eye. And, you know, having been um, acting and directing and producing for like 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not every one of those 30 years is going to be incredible. Yeah. So I understood that and certainly had my share of love life disappointments and, <laughs> you know, and I'm a father. So, I, I mean, I have a lot of life to draw from. Yeah. So I was really struck by the emotional core of the of the character and the, and the, uh, the sweet, sad, funny quality of the whole script. The movie is about a man who is a father and a son, and you quite... Famously, are half of a f- famous father-son duo. Yeah. Uh, your father, Dominic Dunn, the mm-hmm. writer, film producer, and journalist. And one of my favorite parts of the Discovers is your character's relationship with his daughter. It's such a wonderful depiction of a relationship between two strong characters. I was wondering if you drew upon your experience as a son. Or... Well, no, I actually could draw on my experience as a father with my own daughter, who's also now just starting out as an actress. Hannah, right? Hannah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she is a very strong-willed person. Very intelligent and very stubborn, calls things like it is. You know, and I've never been a uh, dad that talks to her like she's a little kid. And the character I played talks to his daughter the same way. I don't see any soy milk. 
I'm sorry. I forgot. That's cool. I'm not that important. Oh. Okay. Um, listen. I have some bad news. Your grandmother is very ill, and we're going to go visit her before we go to Oregon. Sorry she's not well, but don't we, like, hate them? Well, you can't divorce your family, even if you don't get along. You and Mom sure didn't have a problem with that one. Did you and your father have a similar kind of back and forth? No, actually. My dad was much more, when I was a kid, I was much more uh, elusive. His priorities were much more, as I think was the case with many parents then, were being a parent was second to work and yeah. social life. Yeah. And I heard you tell a story once about they used to throw these great parties with big, big Everybody, names. Everybody, yeah. And sometimes if it was a school night, they would park you and your brother and sister at a hotel. We would go. In your pajamas. Uh, our, our, <laughs> we would check. And a school night, my sister's, uh, what do you call it, nurse, babysitter, whatever, would take the three of us into the hotel. We'd walk through the lobby in our PJs, Footsies. you know, with their <laughs> yeah, and our little slippers and, and our book bags for school the next day. And they would party till dawn <laughs> and, you know, sleep, sleep off their hangover all day. And yeah. we come back from school and still see the remnants of, you know, broken glasses sure. in the corner and <laughs> cigarettes put out. It was kind of like Mad Men era. It was very much Hollywood, Mad Men. Though. Matter of fact, I, I'm the same age as the daughter. In Mad Men. I, oh. I was just thinking about that the other when day. you were that same age. Yeah. I was that same age. Like right now in the, the last episode, I saw her in boarding school. Yeah. And I was doing the math and I went, God, that kid's the same age as, yeah. as, as it would have been me. And I figured it out because everything looked exactly as I remembered it. The art it, direction was that The art direction in. is pitch perfect. <laughs> yeah. So along with acting, you've also directed a number of films, produced a number of movies, including After Hours. In this film, you were working with the first-time director, Justin Schwartz. Was it hard for you to just be an actor? Were you tempted to give advice or chime in on things? It was very important to me to just be an actor. And I was thrilled to just be an actor. If you're just an actor, all you have to do is think about the one thing. I knew if I thought about, like, why is he putting the camera there? Or that's awful direction. Or that's any any judgment of any kind, which I didn't really, I, I, I just didn't think like that. So Justin, um, being a first-time director, directing a guy who directed, you know, a few movies before, he had nothing to worry about with me. And I yeah. made that very clear. And... But it is intimidating. I mean, you've worked with Scorsese. You've worked with Sydney I've seen LeMay. some really great ones. Yeah. Great ones working. And uh, the last thing I would want would be to intimidate someone who's got so much work to do. Well, speaking of greats, I have a question for you that's unrelated to this movie. Okay. I feel a little guilty asking it, but <laughs> I have an opportunity, so I'm going to. Joan Didion. Yeah the great American essayist. It wasn't until I read her last book, Blue Nights, that I discovered that she was your aunt. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Which immediately made sense because her husband is the author John Gregory Dunn, who shares your name. Mm -hmm. As a big fan of Didion, I just wanted to ask you about your relationship. Are are you two close? Has she been a part of your life? uh, Yes, very. And I'm also, you know, very aware of her fan base and her legacy. I've never seen anyone have such a profound effect on so many different kinds of people. So, like, well, like some people say they moved to New York because they read Goodbye to All That. Sure. But so many people say I became a writer because I read Slouching. Since she was so personal about her own observations, sure. they would look inward at their own lives and yeah. kind of decide what kind of person they wanted to be. And your father produced the film version of one of her novels, Play It As It Lays. You know, I remember when that book came out, it was like that was just when I was starting to get really excited about books, you mm-hmm. know, and kind of overcoming my own reading issues. And so you had dyslexia, right? I had dyslexia, yeah. And, but I found I didn't have dyslexia if I was reading something I really loved. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> funny that. Interesting. <laughs> Did you learn that? That after was my boarding excuse. School? Yeah, yeah, that was my excuse for everything. That's the only reason I failed that course. That's you know? right. You weren't interesting enough. That's my dyslexia. <laughs> and so uh, when the movie was shooting, I was also a PA on the set. Oh, wow. And it was huh. my first PA job where I remember the, um, you know, they have a thing called a hot set. That's what you're going to be shooting on and the, where everything is is supposed to stay just where it is. And the director, Frank Perry, asked me to get him a coffee. It was my first thing. He goes, all right, kid. Your first job is get me a coffee. I like it black and all of this and another thing. And bring me a little Danish and and I couldn't find the craft service, so I went and oh, I made no. a, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I made coffee right there at the set. Yeah, and the, on the set, on yeah. the set, and they, <laughs> and they came the prop person. He went, who the who screwed up on the set? Where did everything go? You know. Yeah. And I made him instant coffee. <laughs> double double screw up. Double screw up. And he took one sip and he threw it against a wall. That's what nepotism, you know, it undermines merit. Absol- absolutely. No, he was actually <laughs> showing me a lesson, like, I'm not treating you in any way special. In fact, in fact I'm going to torture you. Did having famous family members ever feel like a burden to you? Not really. You know, my father, for example, I was already working as an actor and was kind of well on my way when he was completely broke, living in Oregon, hmm. his uh, movie career in just in flames he he totally flamed out so it wasn't like oh that's dominic dunn's son it was like yeah. actually the other way around you know so when he reinvented himself you know really rose from the ashes he was making his own legacy yeah. you know and and i've always been so incredibly proud and in awe of my aunt and uncle all my life you sure. know and if i was maybe not doing so well with uh with a girl i was flirting with i'd have to drop john's name <laughs> and it that? worked it closed <laughs> i closed the deal every time wow so yeah so i i, I use that legacy as much as i possibly could <laughs> <laughs> Griffin Dunn, his new movie, The Discoverers, opens in limited release this weekend. And Rico, he told me he's currently at work on a documentary about his aunt. So look for that in the future. All right. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, acclaimed actor James McAvoy, a.k.a. Professor X in the new X-Men film, joins us to talk about a slightly different kind of role. A very abusive, misogynistic, manipulative, abhorrent, drug-abusing character. Not a popcorn film is what he's saying. Till then, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin does all things digital. I'm told they both make fine pancakes. They do. Our interns are James Delahousy and Esther Mania. Bill Lance was our engineer this time around, and Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. Bon appetit. <laughs>